So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the April 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for a terrific conversation as we expand once again on a point-counterpoint discussion. My first guest today is Dr. Manu Jain, Associate Professor of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. He'll be discussing his article, Point, Does the Risk of Cross-Infection Warrant Exclusion of Adults with Cystic Fibrosis from Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Events? Yes. Manu, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Mr. Stephen Shepard, who's got a master's in public health, who's also a patient at University of California, San Diego, for the last 35 years at the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic. He will be discussing his article, Counterpoint, Does the Risk of Cross-Infection Warrant Exclusion of Adults with CF from Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Events? No. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Steve, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, and thank you. So, um, guys, before we, you know, start to go back and forth in regards to the point-counterpoint, you know, help our listeners out and, and uh, give us some backdrop as to why we're even having this debate. You know, how did, how did this come up? Um, why does cross-infection matter? Or what's going on at the foundation level, et cetera? And then, obviously, we'll go back and forth and discuss the merits of this, uh, as each of you point out in your articles. But just set a backdrop for us. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Kyle. Um, I will uh, just uh, talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of, of cystic fibrosis. I think most people realize it's a genetic uh, disease uh, which has um, manifestation all over the body, but the most uh, the most profound ones are in the lungs. And the lung disease is uh, uh, is called bronchiectasis. And one of the complications of bronchiectasis is a chronic infection of the airways. And this can be due to bacteria, mycobacteria, viruses, and such. But the most important bacteria for CF patients is a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And that has really been the focus of treatment historically for CF patients. And this is a chronic infection. In other words, it persists in the airways for years to decades. And um, managing it is a, a very difficult uh, uh, clinical problem. Um, one of the questions that comes out of this uh, understanding is how do patients get this chronic infection? It has been thought um, historically that most people get the infection from the environment. Pseudomonas is ubiquitous in our, uh, in our environment. Uh, normally we don't have problems with it because our airway defenses are able to manage this infection, but in the context of CF that is not working normally. Um, but what has also been realized over the last 15 to 20 years is that some patients can get infection from other patients. That, uh, in other words, their pseudomonas is not from necessarily from the environment, but it could be from another CF patient. And that's sort of the background of, of why we get concerned about, uh, about uh, infection control and patient-to-patient transmission. Steve, um, what would you, Steve, what would you like to add to that? Well, as far first, as the I'd like to, first, first I'd like to thank Chest um, for taking an interest in this subject and uh, and thank Chest on behalf of my co-authors as well. Uh, Chest has given us and people with CF the only meaningful um, platform or forum for discussing this particular policy that we're going to get to. And uh, I'd also like to, to thank uh, Manu Jain, um, whom I don't know, um, but uh, I've known a lot of CF docs, and they're all hardworking, dedicated, selfless, and uh, I'm sure he's uh, of the same mold. So uh, thank you for the work you do. Thank um, you, Steve. To add to what uh, Manu just said, uh, because of the uh, 
recently identified or within the last 15 years, 20 years, uh, risk of transmission of some pathogens between CF patients, the uh, CF Foundation has uh, instituted a new policy, and this policy went into effect and was announced March 14, 2013, and that date's important to keep in mind. And the policy itself is very simple and straightforward, and it says, and I'm quoting, that any CF Foundation-sponsored indoor event, meeting, or office, including gatherings such as Foundation chapter meetings, only one person with CF may be present. This person will be designated by the Foundation. So the Foundation has uh, instituted a policy basically to exclude any more than one person from any of its meetings and the rationale, the stated rationale, is to uh, protect people from possibly transmitting pathogens back and forth. Is that right. fair, this is obviously, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I did not mean to interrupt. Uh, I, I'm done. Oh, fair enough. Then I'll interrupt. <laughs> I mean, this is, and so what you're what you're introing to is obviously towards what this what this uh, point counterpoint is about about the the merits of this policy and, and the the evidence and foundation for this policy, et cetera. Um, but if I'm if I'm hearing both of you correct, what what essentially uh, again, you know. The, the debate centers on the merit, but but the rationale for this discussion began with the issue of cross-infection amongst cystic fibrosis patients because of these chronic infections that Dr. Jane just mentioned about, and and others obviously, um, and you know similar to how all of us in a uh, clinical setting, in a hospitalized setting, patients with certain organisms, you know, we have to gown up, glove up, and so forth to prevent us from spreading it from patient to patient. There was a Concern that in a non-hospitalized setting, whether this was occurring or not, and hence, again, how this policy started to come to being. Is that a, is that a way to summarize how we got to here? Well, I think I think uh, a little bit of historical um, background would be, I think, helpful. Um, if we go back to the early to mid '90s, there was a, a different organism called Burkholderia cepatia, uh, which is, can also infect um, uh, CF patients. Uh, uh, much less frequent, about 4% or so in CF patients. But that was associated with severe um, deter deterioration of lung function and, and premature death um, in, a, in patients who got infection from other CF patients. And it's been the policy of the CF Foundation for, you know, 15 years that, that patients who have Burkholderia cepatia um, would, be, uh, would be asked not to attend CF-sponsored events. And that's been in place for, like I say, 15-plus years. Uh, over time, what's become uh, more clear is that not only Burkholderia cepatia, but other bacteria like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, um, uh, MRSA, not tuberculosis mycobacteria, can also uh, infect from one patient to the other, can also lead to rapid deterioration of, uh, of the patient uh, clinical course. So, so this this uh, you know new policy, if you will, uh, really has um, sort of expanding what has actually already existed for 15 years, uh, just because we've gained more information about the, the pathogenicity of these other bacteria. Um, the the foundation and the guidelines committee that that recommended this um, uh, based it on on those uh, new findings in, in the research. Yeah, I'd like to uh, slightly disagree with that. Um, 
the original uh, policy and the original set of studies that uh, demonstrated transmission, um, well, the, poli the original policy was to exclude people who were known to carry uh, Burkholderia's hepatia. And the present policy is to exclude from meetings all people with CF. And so the decision has been made to treat everybody uh, as if they are harboring pathogens, whether they do or not, or whether it's known that they do or not. And um, that is one of the uh, aspects of this that, that my co-authors and I object to. Um, I, I should mention for uh, listeners that uh, I have three co-authors on this um, uh, counterpoint, uh, two physicians, um, Dr. Quinton and um, Dr. Goodrich, uh, and, and uh, actually uh, Julie Desch in Stan Stanford, uh, two physicians and one Ph.D. So um, there's multiple what, 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 points of view in this in this in this. Context. Yeah. Well, basically, it's the idea of treating everybody as if they're infectious um, that we object to, and um, y you know to do that to impose uh, behavior controls or movement controls on people not known to be infectious is essentially imposing a quarantine, and. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to object to that. Well, um, I, I, I think characterizing it as and, a and, quarantine. And, and, sorry, go ahead. One more thing to keep in mind here: um, a lot of the transmission studies are based on uh, 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 studies with children, and um, in particular, children's behavior. So the first concerns about transmission arose in the 80s because of CF camps. And at these CF camps, there would often be 100 uh, patients with CF, almost all of them children, and they'd go out into the, um, you know, some outdoor setting, and they'd spend a week together living in uh, basically uh, bunk bed situations, eating together, horsing around, playing together, doing what kids do, uh, giving each other pulmonary respite, uh, pulmonary therapy, and under those conditions, there was transmission. Now, the policy that the CF Foundation has imposed and that we are discussing pertains to adults, and it pertains to adults in professional public settings where the behavior is entirely different than the behavior that led to the transmission uh, among children. So what we're talking about is the possibility or the fact that transmission occurs says nothing about the likelihood of it occurring, and particularly in the circumstances we're talking about. Well, let me, let me just respond to the, the, the points that Steve just made. Uh, the first is that, um, uh, that the, the policy with, with regards to B. Cepatia was was based on a known pathogen. But as, as everything that happens, you know, things evolve over time. And one of the things we've found over time is that the um, pathogenicity of, of bacteria can change unexpectedly. So you don't know, for example, that what was considered safe, uh, a safe pseudomonas infection with respect to detrimental outcomes may mutate and change uh, unexpectedly. Secondly, um, we, we can't uh, confidently ex exclude 
uh, based on the, uh, based on uh, how we uh, detect bacteria, that there may not be a, a hidden pathogen that we are unable to 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 detect uh, clinically. Uh, so, so the fact that we are not known to be infected with a specific organism does not exclude the possibility that you are tra- are capable of transmitting a very pathogenic bacteria. Point number two. May I finish, please? Yeah. So, so point number two. Um, these guidelines um, that were um, that were put together by committee included one CF patient on the committee and uh, uh, three parents of um, uh, 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 who have children with CF. So there was a broad representation of the uh, members of the committee that that included every uh, potential uh, stakeholder in this particular issue. So we had representation from patients and family members of, of patients with CF. Yeah. Um, can, can I respond to that? Well, let me finish responding oh, okay. to all your points okay. first. Okay. okay, go ahead. Um, the, the point number three, that, that as you get uh, older, uh, the, um, the pathogenicity and the virulence of the bacteria increases. We know this based on studies that as you get older, um, the effect on lung function accelerates uh, with respect to the bacterial impact on your lung function decline. And so the fact that you're an adult uh, argues uh, uh, to a degree that you may actually have more pathogenic. We, had, we know it's more resistant to antibiotics. So in some ways that may, is even a more risky population of patients with respect to the, uh, the, to the endemic uh, pathogenicity of the, uh, of the bacteria. So, so taking all of that in, in, in some total, we can't be sure if an adult has a, 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 a pathogenic uh, bacteria that is likely to cause uh, poor outcomes, even if we know what the previous culture results are. It, it, by, by, by chance, it is more likely to be pathogenic just based on the fact that they get, as they get older, they get more uh, resistant organisms with terms of bacteria, uh, antibiotic use. Um, and then the, the, we did have a broad representation broad representation of, uh, on the committee that included patients with CF and family members of CF. So this is a, you know, a, broad, a, a broad-based uh, recommendation. Um, so I'd like to respond to, to, to two points there. Um, the first is the, the notion that uh, you can't be sure that uh, a patient, uh, an adult patient, uh, I, for instance, am not carrying a pathogen. And uh, while in principle I agree that that's the case, we can't be sure about the safety of anything. You know, as you well know, you know, scientifically you cannot demonstrate safety. Um, We can only, you know, make assumptions based on past experience. Uh, As to the committee representation, the... CF Foundation has got a lot of mileage out of that one person with CF on that committee. Um, I think it's worth noting that, first off, there's 14,000 adults in the United States with CF. That one person was a poster child for CF when she was young. Her first job was with the CF Foundation. The majority of her professional career has been with the CF Foundation. For 10 years, she was a vice president of public policy with the CF Foundation, and she's a lawyer. And as we, a lawyer without training in any of the issues that are being discussed. So I don't know that that's particularly broad representation. It sounds more to me like the CF Foundation advising the CF Foundation. And 
I could make similar comments about the three parents. One of those parents, one of the co-authors on the point, is a current employee of the CF Foundation. So broad representation, I think I, I would disagree with that statement. I think it was a very hand-picked group that's uh, not particularly representative of the, uh, the wider population with CF. I, I, uh, I think that's a, that's a misrepresentation of, of the committee. Um, having been on that committee, I can speak to um, the broad representation of the committee directly. Um, and one other point I wanted to make that well, 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 how 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 is that how did I mischaracterize that? Well, I think that you are uh, impugning their credentials by saying that because they worked for the CF initiative, they are uh, they are not capable of having an independent view of how they view this particular policy. And I think that's not a fair representation. I also wanted to make a comment about um, that you that you felt you were quarantined. Um, uh, with this policy, in point of fact, that the, this policy does not say anything about how you uh, uh, live your day-to-day -day life. It is very specific to a single uh, event, a CF-sponsored or CF-centered event, the, which is a very small proportion of time that any CF patient will spend on a day-to-day -day basis in any one particular activity. So to say that this is a quarantine is a, is a, is a way overblowing uh, the impact that this is going to have on most patients. The definition of a quarantine is that you control the movements of a person who is suspected but not known to harbor a contagion. And that's exactly what is happening here. Our movements are being controlled in that we cannot attend meetings. Um, I, I think the quarantine uh, uh, metaphor is a little overblown because 99% of, of your movement is... is, is is free. You are not going to be uh, uh, limited where, uh, with respect to 99% of your movement. So I think that is a, a metaphor that's trying to engender a little bit more emotion than it, sh than it really deserves. Well, can, can I ask but, you guys another question? I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, the, the basic point is that adults with CF, people who are fully competent to make their own decisions, who are autonomous, are being told that they cannot go to meetings that previously they have been attending. My co-author, Paul Quinton, has been attending CF Foundation meetings for 40 years. He's a, he a, a, a highly respected scientist, and this, this, behavior, this um, policy directly affects him. He cannot go to meetings now. I... I, I, I will, I mean, I agree that this has an impact on CF patients, that there's definitely, um, you know, there's, a, there's value of interactions, that the, you know, the day-to-day -day interactions that a patient, CF patient uh, can have uh, in this kind of setting. That is definitely a loss. On the other hand, you know, the, the risk, uh, and we can argue about what that risk might be, and I, you know, I can see that it's probably a small risk, but it's not zero. There's a finite risk. The potential um, uh, consequences of getting a, a very resistant pathogenic organism are so profound that I think any risk is beyond what, uh, what needs to be taken, especially since there are other avenues to disseminate the information that, you know, be, through technology that we can use to get that information across. And I, I concede that there is, 
probably no way to replace the sort of, you know, the, the, the personal nature of, 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 of that interaction by, by technology. But I think the risk-benefit ratio um, supports uh, the policy as has been recommended by our committee. Well, I, I, would, I would beg to differ about that. Risk is, has two components, and one is the magnitude of the event should it occur. So we can have a, a very serious infection, and we can have morbidity and mortality result from infection. But the other component of risk is the probability of the event occurring. And there are simply no estimates whatsoever of the probability of these things occurring. So, and it's likely to be smaller than small. So, um, and seeking a zero risk policy is unrealistic. Every single thing we do carries risk with it. And every time we take an action or make a decision, we are deciding that we are willing to entertain a certain risk to have a certain benefit. And every one of us as adults makes those decisions every day, all the time. Now, suddenly, the CF Foundation has said to adults, you cannot make this decision. So, Steve, can I ask, and, and, and Manu as well, both of you, the, is, the, is the crux of this issue um, the uh, the debatable perspective of what's the actual risk, or is it, um, from what I'm hearing Steve say, the sort of, you know, here's a policy, and um, regardless of even if it was a high risk, you're, you as an organization, you know, CF Foundation, are making decisions for other people people. You know, what, what's the, is it, or is it both? Is it the fact that, you know, that the risk here, how quantifiable is it? And, and so you can debate that, and that's the source of your, of your disagreement. Or is it more, forget the, whatever the risk is, it's really more about sort of the philosophy of, of someone putting, imposing a, um, uh, an exclusion or not? Um, well, Manu, do you, you want to answer that? Uh, well, from for, for my perspective, um, you know, I mean, Steve is obviously uh, very well versed on the issues of infection, chronic infection, infection control, and the risks involved with attending a public event. But there's clear data that, that shows that there's a variability among CF patients of understanding the risk um, uh, associated with various activities and events uh, and attendance of various events. So, so when Steve makes a decision to go to a, uh, to a CF-sponsored event, he understands the risk and uh, the benefit associated with it. Um, I think the policy sort of um, wants to protect a person who doesn't necessarily understand the risk and is not as well-versed as Steve is. And clearly there, are, there are, there's a, a, a variability in the understanding of risk-benefit of, of this among CF patients. So, so in that way, I think it, it affects both uh, you know, a, a person who has a very good understanding, but also a person whose understanding of infection control and infection risk may be, may be you know, less, uh, maybe less informed than, than Steve is. And can I also add that, that, you know, when these guidelines were put out for a public comment period, there were many, many people with CF who um, were, were in favor of these, of these new guidelines. So it's um, a broad... It's, 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 a, it's an issue that has a broad um, 
a, a broad viewpoint as how it's perceived by CF patients. Um, yeah, I'd like. So expand on that. Expand on that, Steve. And, and at the same time, also, um, you know, obviously, you and your authors are, are opposed to this ban. Are there, just out of curiosity, are there non-cystic fibrosis patients who are opposed to this? Uh, well, yeah. Let me let me let me answer that. First, go back to your first question uh, as to whether what what, what is it at uh, issue here is it is it a matter of the risk or is it a matter of the imposition of of a, a policy by the foundation, and those are two equally important matters. As to the matter of risk, um, it, it, the, the Dr. Manu, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Jane and his colleagues make the point several times that the risk is simply not known, can't be quantified. Um, the likelihood of transmission in an open public area is 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 tiny. Tiny, tiny, tiny. The uh, Salt Lake City uh, Convention Center, where the North American CF Foundation conference was held, is 675,000 square feet. I mean, it's a huge, huge place. And it's hard to believe that two people with CF in there pose a risk to each other, particularly if they're uh, following basic hygiene and washing their hands, covering their cough, etc. Now, Manu said that people are variably informed about the risks and the benefits. That's true. People are variably informed about everything. We let, you know, everyone vote, however. But in this particular case, there's no data on how informed or uninformed CF adults are. There's two citations in the rebuttal to our uh, counterpoint that is meant that are meant to support this statement that uh, <clears throat> CF patients are variably informed. Both of those citations include a huge number of CF adults. I mean, I'm sorry. Excuse me. A huge number of parents of children. In some cases, children as young as four months. Both of those studies, the adults who are um, participated are less than a third of the sample, and the results are not disaggregated by age, so we don't know what CF adults know. It's also the case that people were deemed to be noncompliant with recommendations if, for instance, they thought it would be beneficial to meet with a, another person with CF, or if, in fact, they had socialized with another person with CF. Now, that's not necessarily noncompliance. People might be making the, the uh, calculated judgment that that's the thing that they want to do. The, uh, the other thing has to do with the public comment period. To give a little more background to how this recommendation came about, there, in 2003, the CF Foundation put together a uh, group that uh, uh, got together and eventually published um, infection control recommendations, and 10 years later, those recommendations were, uh, in, it was time for an, an update of those recommendations. So over a two-year period, and correct me if I'm wrong, Manu, the committee got together and it reviewed uh, 
It reviewed studies. It reviewed recommendations from other fields. And in January 2013, it came up with a list of 98 recommendations for changes in infection control in CF. The plan was that those 98 recommendations were going to be submitted for public comment in May. And if public comment was such that recommendations needed to be revised, they were going to be revised. In March, however, the CF Foundation took one of those recommendations that no two patients with CF could be in the same place at the same time and made it policy. And they made it policy without public comment. When they announced that public comment, when they announced the policy, people began responding on Facebook. And you can go to Facebook and you can read the comments from March 2013, which I have done. And it turns out that 60% of the people commenting are opposed to the policy. So I don't think it's accurate to say that there was public comment with reference to this one policy. And it's not particularly accurate to say that uh, there was overwhelming support for it. Well, I don't know that uh, a fair, you know, that's a fair representation of how people feel just because it went on Facebook and posted how they felt about it. I mean, I think. Well, that... how did you decide? How did the foundation decide that people were in favor of it? That's not, I, what I said, uh, Steve, was is that there was a broad view of how this policy was perceived. There was a there was um, a significant number of CF patients that supported this policy. You know, in your in your um, in your um, uh, uh, in your article, uh, you make the point that uh, CF patients are opposed to this. I just want to bring out the point that there is a broad view amongst patients and family members of patients about how this policy is. That was that was really the main main point I was trying to get across. Well, granted, there are people that support the policy. That's, that's all I want, that's all I was trying okay. to say. Okay, um, there are people that support the policy, and. There are people who deem any risk too much risk. Granted, I would grant that. So those people are perfectly free to stay home and not go to meetings. So that being the case, a person that goes to meetings is not in any way affecting a person who doesn't go to meetings. Well, that's, that's true, but that's assuming that everyone who goes to meetings has um, has perfect information about the infection control risk. And no, that's not assuming that. I don't have perfect information. Nobody well, does. but you, you are very well informed. A person, it is very plausible a CF patient could go to an event unaware of what the risk is, small it may be, but the profound consequences of a, of a cross-infection. And if they were informed of this, if they knew about this, they may very well may make the choice of not attending the event. And so I think that is a complicated issue with respect to, inf you know, what, how informed you are and what choice you would make. I don't think you can make the, uh, make the choice and say, well, if I know what the risk is and I'm making that choice to go, it still doesn't exclude the possibility that someone else is going to be there uninformed of the risk and putting, and then, you know, they may be at risk unknowingly. That's the point of the policy. So there are... If you guys, are children allowed to come to these meetings prior to this policy? Were children at the meeting? So children with CF? Yes. Uh, no. 
Okay, so children have always been not allowed. Well, but again, before this policy, well, because there's no, been a but, lot no, of no. children were treated the same as adults. I, I misunderstood your question. Okay, yeah. So children or adults with CF have historically been at foundation-sponsored events. As long as they were not infected with Burkle barrier sedation, that's a, that policy has existed for a long time. Hey, who who enforced this? So how do you well, know? It's it's that's the other part. This is not enforced. This is a policy that is not enforced. And so no one is checking IDs um, at an event. No one is checking. It is a self-enforced, self-enforcing policy. No one is asked to es- escort it out if you, if you come, you're the second person or third person with CF at, at an event. So the, the question about people attending and with CF, attending meetings and being poorly informed, there, there's, an, there's a way to deal with that without banning people from coming to meetings. The Cystic Fibrosis Research Incorporated, which is another CF organization in the United States, holds meetings at which they invite people, they encourage people with CF to come, CF adults. They, they're encouraged to come. However, before they come, they're asked to sign a uh, they submit sputum cultures, and they're also asked to sign a statement that will that says that they recognize that there are risks and that they will engage in hand hygiene, cough hygiene, uh, keep safe distances, and do all of the things that are known to keep people safe at the meetings. So you can let people come while teaching them about the risks and teaching them how to be safe. You don't need to keep them away. Well, I, th- I think that um, you're talking about one particular center in the country. No, it's not a center. It's an organization. I know, but it's, it's, a, it's around one particular center. Um, it's, it's sponsored by, by uh, uh, one particular center. Um, and, 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 and to implement that at the 110 CS centers, uh, across the country, in addition to all the CFF-sponsored events, would be uh, a Herculean task to 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 take the expense and and, and to do that. Um, I think that's a relatively unique situation. And I also want to point out that the policy that the uh, that the CF Foundation has um, has put into place is also consistent with what with the Canadian CF Foundation and the in the in the uh, UK. Uh, uh, CF uh, Trust has also recommended. So this is all aligned with, the, with uh, similar, um, similar recommendations. Um, well, I'd like to point out that the CF, uh, the CF Foundation in Canada, up until uh, last summer, summer of 2013, had a policy in which they, they told people that it was not, that it was that there were risks involved in attending meetings. They told people that right up front. They said that as an organization, we feel compelled to tell you that you probably shouldn't come. But as an organization, they also recognized that they wanted people to make their own adult decisions. And that's where they left the matter up until right before the American CF Foundation changed its policy. It's also the case that CF, uh, the CF Foundation in New Zealand lets people with CF come to their meetings with the um, acknowledgement that there are risks. 
So, you know, it's not uniformly accepted, and uh, it hasn't been the case that uh, everybody's been on board with the CF Foundation in the U.S. until very, very, very recently. So, so guys, help me out then. As a non-CF doctor, um, I'm thinking of the physical setup of my regular pulmonary clinic and waiting room, <laughs> exam rooms. So, you know, we're busy discussing having people in the same lecture auditorium, but um, it seems to me that it, what's really dangerous is to be a CF patient to go see a doctor. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, when you're sitting next to, when you're literally, you know, so, and the, and the day before, by the way, with some other clinic that, you know, so just help me out. I mean, I, obviously well, this is, you guys, have, you guys have dealt with this issue on a more sure. micro scale. Sure. Right? I mean, that's, and within that document, our recommendations about how to what the patient flow in a CF clinic should be, how PFT should be done. So it's a very broad-based uh, document, even though we're just discussing one, uh, one point in the document. So, um, um, so there are clear recommendations about, you know, minimizing waiting time in the area, recommending doing spirometry in clinic, uh, in the clinic room if possible, so to minimize any sort of interaction from patient to patient. Um, yeah, it, it, if I can make a couple comments. Sure. Okay. Um, first off, you're, you're exactly right, Kyle, that the most dangerous place a CF person can go is to the hospital or to a CF clinic. And that is shown in study after study after study. What we're talking here about is the risk of uh, transmission in a social setting, but almost all the data that's been accumulated is from nosocomial environments. That's where people pass infections back and forth. And so for the non-CF docs, there are ways to handle that. And at the clinic I attend, the way that it's handled is that it's a, it's a large university, and the CF clinic is held after hours. And so in, they have an enormous suite of rooms available uh, in which to see patients. And so you walk in to the waiting room and immediately you're sent to your own individual exam room and you stay there for the entire clinic. And the doctors go from patient to patient to patient. The patients never uh, interact with each other. And that is, you know, as it should be because that's the place where the dangers exist. And, 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 and uh, one thing I'll add to that. Um is that um, if you look at some of the studies that have been done in the past, what you, what you can clearly show is that if you, uh, uh, if you uh, implement interventions where you limit patient-to-patient -patient interactions, there is a significant fall in patient-to-patient -patient transmission. That's also part of the rationale of trying to minimize exposure of patients in a social setting, too, because multiple studies have shown that in a clinic that has had an outbreak, that if they implement uh, measures to limit, like glove and gown, no waiting in the patient room, separate PFTs in their own room, those kinds of interventions, patient-patient transmission falls dramatically. So we know these kinds of interventions work. But, but those are interventions in a situation where there's a high contact density. You know, people are in close environments. They're coughing on, in, uh, on, the, on the environments. Uh, you know, and those situations don't apply out in the public at general, you know, m meetings in large convention centers. Uh, 
Well, let me, and, Steve, let, you know, let the me lack of information about contact density and the infectious dose that it takes to transmit it, uh, one Steve, of these not, organisms. Steve, not all CF events are in a 675,000 square foot arena. There are, there are events in small rooms. I used to be on the CF Foundation uh, chapter board in San Diego, so I, I yeah, you're right. You know, and so, well, so it's well, hard that's to what I'm thinking. At a lot of these meetings, there are breakout rooms, and I can. So, Steve, let me just. I'll to be, you know, to, to keep the debate going. Let me throw out the scenario where, you know, there's one of those rooms that holds only 100 people, and based on whatever the topic of the discussion is, 20 CF patients decide they want to listen to this discussion. So, um, fine, there's 80 non-CF, but there's, that's a significant density of cystic fibrosis patients of variable microbiology, uh, you know, infection in one relatively small room with poor air exchange and at variable paces. So unless you're, unless you're wearing a sign, which I'm assuming you don't, um, how do you know, again, unless you know the person from, you know, through, um, you know, social interaction, how do you know that for whatever reason, randomly, the 20 CF patients didn't all congregate in the front corner of the room and are actually in fairly close proximity? So well, I, I just... Yeah, okay. So you've just described a pretty dangerous uh, environment. And the right, answer it sounds like a that, clinic. <laughs> yeah. The answer to that is to do what you do at clinics, which is to plan ahead. You know, if you're going to hold a, a, a meeting on uh, the benefits of knowing uh, people with CF um, and a whole lot of people with CF are expected to come, you're going to have to hold that in a, in a, you know, a large auditorium where you can space people out and you've got good air exchange. You don't cram people together. I mean, well, they're, they're, you know, you can, you can anticipate these things and, and behave accordingly. Plan accordingly. So I could also envision a scenario then if you're, if you're hosting, if there was a middle ground to this discussion, um, but it sure seems to me that this is uh, equally um, offensive to potentially both sides. Um, if patients are coming then to these meetings, um, then are they being self-identified? Are you wearing, everyone has a name tag on at all these meetings, it seems. Do you have a name tag on that kind of declares you? But that sure seems like a complete violation of your privacy. Um, and so that doesn't seem like a workable solution. But if, if patients are to be at these meetings, is that, um, you know, to counter the, the concern about uh, cross-contamination and cross-infection, if people were self-identified, forget how ugly that sounds, um, uh, then would that uh, be a way around that to ensure adequate spacing, you know, make CF zones within the room? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if that's really going to be a workable solution. Because well, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 what the... What the recommendations, the guidelines recommended is that, you know, people have access to this information that is being communicated at a meeting just electronically, you know, whether it's through video or webcast or, or whatever. And, and, and so they're not denied access to this information without having to be, um, you know, put at risk for cross-infection. So if I could answer that, the, um, the question is whether identifying myself is having CF and other people doing the same in a meeting, uh, you're right, is, is, is problematic. I, you know, I can't say whether I'd be in favor of that or not. But a policy can be devised, could be devised, in which some sort of consensus on that matter could be arrived at. But the CF Foundation didn't choose to make its decision that way. Now, if it had decided, if it had gathered together, you know, 20 different people with CF, 
with different backgrounds from different places in the United States and let them work this out, we'd have a solution that would be uh, have more chance of being accepted. But that's not what happened. Does, does it sound to me that one of the driving principles, obviously having not not being on the committee that was involved with this decision, but Dr. Jane, you were, was one of the driving principles considered to, to be um, both the, obviously from the cross-contamination and infection risk, but in particular uh, protection of children, um, as you alluded to, from the uh, potentially more virulent strains that might be present in an adult. And, and the reason I ask, I, I can envision a scenario of a of a young family with a with a you know new child in their family who has cystic fibrosis and um, obviously scared overwhelmed etc and arriving at a meeting you know infant in tow um, to go try to learn more rightfully so and having actually a completely but coming in fairly uninformed after all they're they're new to this whole universe um, is that sort of was that the backdrop that was involved in these two well, that's, points. Uh, Kyle, that's one uh, one scenario I think that uh, was sort of in the in the in the background of of uh, of consideration but there it doesn't have to be even kids you can take a uh, a healthy adult as you know you know patients are living older and older and arriving into adulthood adulthood with a virtually normal lung function and so you yeah. take somebody like that and they get this very severe pathogenic organism and they can you know, uh, change their clinical course dramatically. So it doesn't even have to be kids exposed to this. It could be a, uh, a, an adult who's doing very well and their clinical course changes dramatically because of a new infection. And there are clear examples of that in the literature. So that was sort of, you know, in a, in a big way, the concern that the committee was trying to address. Okay. Okay. So let me ask for both of you, because we've obviously been talking for a while, and, and, and you all um, very nicely in, in both your point counterpoints and in both your rebuttals um, uh, have a lot of uh, additional points that you guys have made. <laughs> is, is there is – there, no, it, it, it was actually – it was a, a, a strong – you know, I always encourage our, our listeners to go, to go read, obviously, the articles that correspond to this podcast. But without a doubt, this particular topic, I think, is, is very well outlined by, by both authors and their groups. Um, and so I want to, you know, sort of wrap things up and make sure that there weren't any uh, key points or key things that, you know, either of you meant to say and, and forgot or, you know, the question never got asked. So now would sort of be the time to, to you know, any final points you want to make or a concluding statement, and then let's wrap things up. Uh, Manu, you want to go first? Um, sure. Uh, I think what, uh, what I'd like to finish off uh, by saying that, um, you know, the CF Foundation is not uh, is not trying to be uh, paternalistic and tell patients how to live their lives, and that's a message I think that has to be uh, to delivered very very strongly. Uh, they're making a, a specific recommendation for a specific type of activity, but in no way are they saying, okay, you can't live your life the way you want to live your life. And so, I mean, that's, so the take-home for me is that, you know, patients still have their autonomy, their ability to make their own decisions, and this is a policy designed to uh, minimize a potentially very severe uh, complication of, uh, of uh, transmission of uh, organisms. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, to, to close by saying that a part of the um, – reason for the reaction that my co-authors and I have had to this is that um, it disregards to this policy is that it, it disregards the harm that is done to people, the known harm that is done to people by singling them out 
and labeling them as, you know, basically carriers of contagion. I mean, that's an awful burden to, to carry. And, uh, you know, of all organizations and of all, you know, it's the CF Foundation that's suddenly labeling people with CF as dangerous. And it's, you know, we were, I think, dismissed in our rebuttal as, as um, you know, being uh, patronizing because we said this sort of labeling could be damaging. But I'd like to read a very, very brief, you know, couple sentences from a person who actually responded to the CF Foundation right after they posted their policy. And what this person said was, with this new policy, I regret to say that I have never felt so isolated, singled out, betrayed, and ashamed of my CF. For the first time in my life, my CF is stopping me from doing what I want to do, help others with CF by being actively involved in foundation meetings and events and helping find a cure for this disease. There's a lot of pain expressed in that statement. And it's been, it's been, it's been induced by the CF Foundation. And, you know, uh, I, I, that, it's, it's unconscionable, frankly. I think that's a, an, an, uh, an excellent final point uh, for you to make, um, Stephen. I really appreciate uh, uh, your participation, and, and Dr. Jane, uh, you as well, both of you, um, I think. Um, it's obviously a, a very tough issue and full of a lot of uh, emotion, obviously, as well uh, for each individual, and I mean, excuse me, for the entire community. Um, and, and I wanted to thank both of you, obviously, for, for being able to, to expand upon uh, your work uh, and, and have a nice discussion here to help uh, I think frame this uh, for for our listeners and obviously for other cystic fibrosis docs and patients uh, who are also uh, listening to this. Uh, so thank you both for your time very much, and, and thank you so much for making such great points. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate, thank I appreciate you, the opportunity. Thanks. All right.